Lord, we pray that your spirit would be encountered, your forgiveness experienced, and that your love would show us the way. Amen. The summer before my senior year, I went to a firm. Yep, between my junior and senior year in high school, that's how long this event has been around. I would get up in the mornings and run. Camp was a long day. Stayed up late with friends, trying to stay up every minute the counselors would let us, and sometimes beyond. I still got up to run because our football coaches had put together a running program and an exercise program for the summer, and I wanted to win. I wanted to do my part to help my team win, because winning matters, doesn't it? Turn on the radio this morning. Guess what? The Predators won. And not only did the Predators win, they are now in playoff contention. They are now officially, if the season ended today, they would be a playoff team. Today. Today. But it matters. I listen to a lot of sports talk radio. The pressure to win, whether it's the Titans, the Predators, or our new soccer team. The whole goal is to win. That's how we measure success, isn't it? That's how we measure greatness. Why do people call Tom Brady the greatest of all time? He's won six because he's won more Super Bowls. The biggest prize, the most times. Hmm. Maybe this is truly how we measure success. But it's not how Jesus measures success. Our gospel reading for tonight, Jesus predicts the passion once again. We had it on Sunday in chapter 8. We're just now in chapter 9. He predicted the passion, and Peter told him, no, you're being the wrong kind of king. You're not doing Messiah right, and Jesus put him in his place. So when he says it again here, that the Son of Man will be betrayed, into human hands, suffer, be killed, and on the third day, rise. Mark tells us the disciples still did not understand, but I do understand why they didn't ask any questions this time. They were afraid to ask, even though they didn't understand, because the last time, Peter got put in his place. But how do you measure success? So then the disciples Start talking amongst themselves. How would you measure the greatest disciple? The one who dies the most glorious death for Jesus? I don't know. How do you measure the greatest disciple? The one who cast out the most demons. Did they really keep score on who healed the most people? Oh, well, Jesus called me first. How do you even begin to measure greatness? And Jesus says, we measure greatness a different way. For the disciples of Jesus Christ on the way, those who are first will be last. Those who are last will be first. It comes up again and again in the gospel. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. 
let them deny themselves. Die to your own self-will, your own self-determination, and follow God. And how do we do that? The church has done that for traditional ways throughout the centuries. Through giving, through praying, through fasting. And Jesus says, but even when you do that, it's not about showmanship or being great. Letting everybody know, hey, watch it. Look, I'm putting a check in the offering plate. It's not about fasting so much that you're emaciated and you can walk around going, I'm so tired because I'm not eating and letting the whole world know. And it's not about telling me about how many people you have helped. But Jesus says, instead, when you pray. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, go into the inner room, shut the door, and pray in secret. The inner room that he speaks of would have been in every house, similar to what we call a pantry, and it had a door on it. No windows, but a way to shut out the rest of the outside world and have some alone time and conversation with God. And I noticed he says, when you pray. When you pray. I assume, right, sometimes because I'm a pastor, I assume you are church going, you are praying people. But since we're Lutheran, we don't always talk about it, do we? Or we pray out loud. I grew up Lutheran in the South and went to church with some of my Baptist friends to some of their youth group meetings and fun activities. And then I looked with abject fear when they would call on one of my friends to pray for the whole group. I came to realize that they were never going to call on me because I was the visitor and the guest. So I was off the hook. But it didn't mean I didn't pray. But do we pray? <coughs> Lent is a time of prayer, historically. A time where prayer is a dialogue with God. When Mother Teresa was asked about prayer, somebody asked her once, what do you say when you pray? And she said, nothing. I just listen. If we talk about that life that God has gifted us with, when I let go of my own measuring sticks of greatness, when you do that, how do you know where to follow God? When you get to that question, now what do I do with my life? How do I use my time? How do I spend my money? Now what do I do with my life? If you don't pray, you don't know. Bishop Michael Reinhardt says it this way, prayer is not just another task. It's the conduit for our relationship with God. It's an invitation to come away, to get off the treadmill and spend restful time listening. I believe our lives are chaos without this. It's been said that our lives without daily prayer are like a book written without using the space bar. Think about that. No space between words. No space. How hard that would be to read a whole book. And Jesus says, when you fast. And fasting is something even deeper than just giving something up. It's a challenge. 
I gave up chocolate one year. I completed that challenge. I'm not doing it again. That was me. But if we're not careful, then our fasting becomes just a challenge for us, for me to get to the end of it and go, I made it. It's Easter. Where's the chocolate? Could I complete the challenge? But that's not the point of fasting. The point of fasting, I want you to picture an empty plate. Fasting frequently has to do with food and drink, and it doesn't have to be food or drink. But think then of fasting of an empty plate. When you have an empty plate, I can put something on it. When your plate is already full at the church potluck, I can't add anything to it. The whole point of fasting is to empty ourselves so God can put stuff on our plate and see what God provides for us. The whole point and depth of fasting is that empty plate image or an empty cup so that God can fill it. Think of a cup full of your favorite beverage. If it's full, there's no room for anything else. The point of fasting through Lent, whatever your fast that you choose, whatever it may be, is to empty yourself so that God can fill it up. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, when you give. And it's the whole way of life of being a Christian is giving. Giving love, giving mercy, granting justice where there's injustice. The whole time of Lent is a time to consider your neighbors and where you can give. Perfect time to pick up a piggy bank, right free ad right here, <laughs> for good gifts and make a life for someone else and give the gift to someone else. Bob Moorhead, in words aptly spoken, says, the paradox of our time in history is that we have taller buildings but shorter tempers, wider freeways but narrower viewpoints. We spend more but have less. We buy more but enjoy less. We have bigger houses and smaller families, more conveniences but less time. We have more degrees behind our name but less sense, more knowledge but less judgment, more experts yet more problems, more medicine but less wellness. We drink too much, smoke too much, spend too recklessly, laugh too little, drive too fast, get too angry, stay up too late, get up too tired, read too little, watch too much TV, and pray too seldom. We have multiplied our possessions but reduced our values. We talk too much, love too seldom, and hate too often. I wish I could disagree with him. The season of Lent is an invitation and a call from God to live and love differently. The measuring stick isn't who's the greatest, but who's the least. Who puts others first? Who helps others? Who lives to serve others? And whatever it is that you do, whether it's playing music, helping kids, making sure people are insured, protecting our community, building houses, putting up walls, whatever it is that you do, 
It's an invitation not just to do it for a paycheck, but to do it to serve others. Because Martin Luther said, God does not need our good works. Our neighbor does. God does not need our good works. Our neighbor does. And I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes not just me, but the one who sent me. When he says, whatever you've done for the least of these, you have done for me. You did it for me. I never fully understood that till I was a parent. If someone helps my child, helps me, help them grow into the man and woman that God has made and called them to be. So in a few minutes, you come up. We mark your head with the ashes, reminding you of your death, your own mortality. We do it in the shape of a cross, reminding you of that same cross that was traced on your head at baptism, the symbol of all of Christianity, the symbol that was meant to be a symbol of death for us is a symbol of life because we know the one who holds the power of life over death. And then freed from death, we're invited to follow and serve on the way. Amen.